Welcome to the latest episode of Script and Pencils, the comic book creator podcast from thecomicrush.com. I'm your host, Paul, and before we start this week's show, just a quick reminder that our Patreon helps keep the site and our podcast running, and just $2 a month means the site stays ad-free. If you like what we do and want more great content, follow us on Twitter at The Comic Rush. Like our ComicRush.com page on Facebook and check out our other great podcast, From Panels to Pictures, on Spotify or on the site, thecomicrush.com, where you can stream or download all our pod content. You can follow me, at ManRecomic, on Twitter and Instagram. This week's guest is Helen Mullane, who after a career in the film industry that included co-producing the 2000 AD documentary Future Shock in 2017, made the move into working on her first passion, comic books and has written Nick Nevin and The Bloody Queen, which is out now from Humanoids Publishing. Nick Nevin is an evocative, atmospheric tale of folklore in the modern world. It was drawn by Dom Reardon and Matthew Dow Smith, coloured by Lee Lothbridge, and lettered by Rob Jones. It also features a cover by Jock. You can follow Helen on Twitter, at SuperMegabot, and the book is available digitally from Humanoids and Comixology, and physically at all good comic stockists everywhere. Now, on with the show. So, Helen Mullane, thanks for uh, coming on the show. I, I lo- absolutely love the book. Um, it's a, it was a fascinating read and a trip through... I, is it Scottish folklore that it's kind of based on? Yeah, so the story is all um, set uh, in the, the borderlands between um, Scotland and Northumberland. Uh, it's an area that's really rich in, um, in folklore. Um, and there's these three hill forts that, um, that feature in the story that are real places that um, really do have a history of, of the folklore that's in the story. So, yeah, so it's all really locally kind of um, based and, like, centred on its geography. Did you start with the folklore? I mean, was, were you just, did you just kind of happen upon these stories and then it started to gel into a comic? Or... Was there an idea to do a comic about something to do with folklore first and then you kind of went searching for stories to use? The story started with kind of a vibe, an atmosphere. I knew the kind of story that I wanted to write and I knew who I wanted to write it about, this central character, Nissy, this kind of uh, disaffected team. So I had these certain elements that I knew that I wanted to hang off of folklore and I knew I wanted to hang them also off of geography um, but I didn't have the specific of those things so I went into a, um, a quite intense period of research in order to find places that had folklore that could serve this story that could become this story so I think it's a bit of a kind of backwards way of doing it in a certain way I kind of started with a vibe <laughs> and then um uh, kind of progressed to a story um, but I found um, I had to find for what I wanted to do I had to find locations that had stories that I could then kind of feed off of in, in the narrative Were you sort of um, student of, of folklore anyway for your own kind of pleasure or for for, for sort of any sort of previous education you had or, or was this your kind of first time delving into this sort of thing I'm really really in general, especially um, uh, Irish folklore and, um, and you know, all around the British Isles also. And um, so that's something that's always interested me. Like, even when I was a kid, many of my favourite books would kind of deal with, with those themes. I was a really big fan of Alan Garner, for example, who wrote this book called The Owl Service. I know it, yeah. Um, which is, oh, I mean, it's, it's an amazing book, an amazing TV show as well. 
um, that it got adapted into. For those that don't know, it's all based around this this real Welsh myth. And uh, Alan Garner imagines this uh, teenage love triangle, um, which is uh, kind of is an echo of, of a far more ancient story. And that, that was like a direct inspiration to me. So I, I, I wanted to not ape like the story of what he was doing, but, but ape that kind of um, the idea of having a, a real place and a real story that then echoes through the ages. And of course, I mean, the thing that comes to mind as I read it with the look of the book is the more recent stuff that you see in the works by kind of uh, Mike Mignola and people like that. Um, was any of that an influence? Did you, did you look at other comics to, to kind of get a feel for, for what you wanted to do for this? Uh, there are a lot of um, comics that have these sort of elements I really love. Like, obviously, you know, Hellboy is, is fantastic. And also um, Swamp Thing um, sure. is, uh, is a comic that I really um, loved and was quite kind of influential. I mean, in terms of the art style, so Dom, uh, Dom Reardon, um, who was, like, he and I... Uh, initially pitched out the comic and then uh, our other artist Matthew Val Smith um, came on later as well but um, the whole book is informed by Dom, uh, Dom's style and the reason why we ended up doing this together because I originally had thought of this um, this story as a TV show again inspired by the L Service um, TV show I, I thought it would be amazing to do something like that a kind of young adult show um, with that sort of tone um, and it was him who um, kind of suggested that I write it as a comic and said that he had always wanted to draw something in this with this tone, this atmosphere. So I kind of um, went ahead and wrote it as a comic kind of at his suggestion. The style is very much, uh, you know, coming from Dom. He has also all these similar influences and this like deep love of kind of folk horror, um, especially the stuff from the 70s um, that I think he was, he was drawing on and then kind of reconfiguring within his own more kind of uh, comic-y style also. So did Dom originally come on as, as the artist for the project? Yeah, so Dom and I, um, so I told him we had a, uh, a great kind of, uh, one of those amazing discussions that you have sometimes on the pub where um, you're just going through all the different things that you love and all the things that influence you. We had this amazing chat about folk horror. And, um, and I told him about this idea that I had and he made that suggestion. So then I went away and, and, um, and wrote it. And um, I was pleased that he, uh, when he read it, he really liked it. So then um, he actually made some sample pages and we pitched it out from there. Um, so it was he and I, and also Jock was there very early on as well. Because wow. um, um, he's um, uh, friends with both of us. And so he very kindly said that he would do a cover for us. Um, so that was the package that we were kind of going out to publishers with. Um, so Dom was there, yeah, very much from, from the absolute um, ground floor. And many of the um, uh, kind of motifs that you see in the book, like the way that animals appear through it, uh, came from discussions with him, or as much from, you know, his imagination as mine. Yeah, it's it's very much kind of in the comics zeitgeist at the moment because, I mean, today I was just looking at, um, I hope I'm saying this correctly, G G Guyam and Tales, which No Brow uh, are bringing out next week, um, or this week rather, and that, of course, is entirely kind of animal and folkloric based, but they're, you know, from Slavic legends and Russian legends and things like that. It is something that's really pre prevalent in comics, and I think that comics do really well. 
In talking about Matthew Dow Smith, whose work I know from Bad Luck Chuck, how how did you guys all kind of find Matthew? How did that kind of um, meeting take place? Um, that had through um, our publisher, through Humanoid, um, at a, a certain point in the in the comic, it seems like a, a good idea to bring someone on board to uh, help with some of the the layouts and stuff, just from a time perspective. Um, and um, he was an absolutely perfect fit that Humanoid got us in touch with. Obviously, you know his art is fantastic, and uh, he uh, also very happily happens to have a really good grounding in folk horror be really infused by it as a as a genre for you know for a long time not not just anything to do with this so then it was a it was a really kind of fortuitous match for us it worked really well yeah i mean it's a it's a wonderful looking book uh you you really feel the kind of jagged um terse style of the art and indeed in in the writing which was which was wonderful um from the time you began the book to to now, how long did it take? Oh, I mean, it's a, it's a long time. So this conversation that I had with Dom that led to me writing the comic strip, that was during our shoot for a documentary that I made called Future Shock. Oh, I, I know it very well, yeah. Great, yeah, great documentary. Oh, so, uh, yeah, thanks. Myself and Paul, the director, we were travelling around the UK to shoot some interviews. We were shooting um, Jock, and so we went to the, you know, their hometown, and that's when this kind of fateful conversation arose. So that is, I mean, that's 2014, I guess. Um, wow. Quite a long time, and uh, it, it took me uh, a while. I wrote the script when I was in um, Alaska the year after, um, and like over three months of the summer. And then from there, Dom created his pages, the, you know, that year, like three kind of sample pages. And then we put it out to, to um, publishers, I think, maybe sometime that year. So it was quite a long process to, to get the whole thing, the whole thing come together. It's like quite fortuitous that it's come kind of during a bit of a zeitgeist of folk horror. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily that when we first were talking about it, when we first conceived of it. Was there a period where, like, given how long it took, on your part or, or Dom's or, or anyone's, was there any kind of despondency over the, the sort of length of period? Because obviously comics take a long time. Um, but was there ever a time when it was kind of, oh, this is kind of wearing me down now, it's not moving as fast as I like or or were you kind of infused throughout the entire process? There's ups and downs of every part of the process I think. The the kind of period of trying to find um, a publisher for it, um, that's quite long and that you kind of start out really gung-ho like yeah that's fine you know we just continue we'll just pitch it to everybody and then there comes that kind of period where you're like oh is no one going to is no one going to bite on this book? Because no one going to kind of pick up what we're putting down. But then when you um, at last do find somebody and then it ends up being just an absolutely perfect fit, then you're kind of up on cloud nine again. Um, so I think that every, um, almost every kind of part of the timeline has its fallow period where it seems like things will, will never come together, but kind of followed by this period of elation when you, the next 
kind of hurdle is jumped, the next stage is, is reached. And it, I mean, it feels kind of unreal almost that, I mean, as we're recording this, we're recording it on Monday the 9th and um, tomorrow it will be out in the States. And that, I mean, that just feels surreal at this point, but in a, you know, in a very good way. Yeah, I mean, and, and hopefully not anticlimactic or, or kind of, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I always think that the pleasure sometimes is in, in the making of the thing and then once it's out there, you know, creative people tend to kind of lose interest a bit. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that happens to you. I, I, I kind of, whenever I try and make something, I, I've kind of, once it's out, I've lost interest. <laughs> I'm out of there, you know? Yeah. yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Like, for me at the moment, I mean, it's all, I mean, it's all very, exciting and I should say actually like with regards to your last question like there was never a time I think even in the fallow periods of the production of the book that I didn't kind of believe in the book like uh, somewhere kind of deep in my soul like I knew it was it was I just believed in it I knew it was going to kind of happen and it was going to be cool in the end um but definitely there's the kind of there's that kind of struggle where not struggle but (laughs) the fact that um, you are thinking of like the next thing and other stories and oh, I really want to do this and I really want to do that but of course you have to focus on the thing at hand and make sure that that's as good as it can be before you you know really move on fully like mentally and emotionally to the next thing mm. is there a time during the research because in a lot of these stories what we find is that the character gets kind of sucked into the myth and the myth becomes real is there and, and this is probably going to sound like a stupid question but is there ever a time when you're doing the research and you kind of get lost in this sort of world where people were at one stage or another living off the land guided by their own dreams you know, guided by signs and portents, is does that threaten to start to consume the waking life of day to day? I mean, h- how deeply do you get into it? Is is, is I guess what I'm asking. Oh, I mean, one hundred percent. I researched this book to the point of pure madness, pure procrastination. You know, um, uh, and I live in a very remote place up in uh, in the north of Sweden that's very kind of magical and, and fairy tale like and you know we have almost complete darkness in the winter and almost complete sunlight in the summer and it's all very mythic and magical anyway so it's incredibly easy to get sucked into the mythology and let you know that sort of I don't know that sort of kind of daydream and and like waking magic just get completely in the way of actually writing the thing the kind of mundane like day-to-day that you have to do to get it on paper it's very easy to get swept away and especially with all the rich kind of mythology and folklore of of the British Isles there's so much there and there's so much to get lost in do you think writers are attracted to desolate places (laughs) I don't know. I think I mean this writer is. I think, but um, uh, I uh, I don't know. I think um, there is a lot of value in being in desolate places. If like me, 
you're a writer who's um, very easily distracted and a little bit a little bit easy to uh, to focus on other things like social things and stuff like that instead of kind of the instead of focusing on the kind of job at hand so for me being in like very remote places is uh, is on many different levels a very kind of wise thing to do if I'm going to be productive yeah the, I think the very first many easily distracted writers yeah I guess the the outer life does sometimes get in the way of the inner life and and for, for writers the inner life is probably more important right I mean yeah exactly where I live it's very easy to find uh, to find a lot of time and space to let your brain just be free to think weird thoughts and then you know occasionally one of them will be you know interesting and it'll be like oh okay let me just kind of examine that further and see if there's something there am I right in saying this was your first comic yeah, but you you you'd read a lot of comics. I mean, you made the two thousand AD documentary, so you, you're quite well schooled in the the medium, I assume. Yeah, I've been reading comics, uh, you know, all as long as I can remember. I'm a really big, uh, really big comic fan. Did you ever imagine, like, when you were young and you were reading comics? Uh, yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to do this one day. No, I think it it didn't feel like something that was in reach or something that was, you know, relevant to, to me. And even, to be honest, writing my own stuff wasn't something that felt like it was something that I should do until really just in recent years. I did some work in um, film development. Um, I worked in, in film marketing for many years, but in um, film development and um, got a chance to work with people's stories and realized that it was something that I you know had a had a knack for pulling apart people's stories and seeing what made them work and and not work but it wasn't until later that I kind of gained the confidence to think that actually being the the one that was writing the story rather than kind of doctoring it was something that that I could do yeah so I mean uh, the bloody queen is the first long-form thing that I've um, ever written on, you know, as my own, as my own thing. So from that perspective as well, it's a, it's a very, like, uh, special thing to me. Do you see yourself going back into this medium again? Would you like to kind of start on on a new comic straight away? Or would you like to kind of take a break and then maybe circle back to it a bit later on? I'm all in on uh, on writing comics. This has been such an amazing experience and it's such a fun medium to write in. It's so satisfying. You've got these small teams of um, creative people. So in this case, we were talking already about um, Dom and, um, and Matthew, um, but also uh, Lee Luffridge, who did the colours, and um, Robin, who did the letters. Um, it's this small kind of team of people who are each uh, taking this material and kind of filtering it through through their own kind of creative mind and um, kind of giving back a, a new version that's better than the one before. Um, and it's also kind of self-contained and, um, and so achievable. I have uh, 
so many things that I would like to write as comics. And I mean, it's some things that I had been mulling over for years as TV serial or, or film ideas. Um, I'm even those I'm kind of repurposing for for this medium because I think it's just kind of opened my eyes and made me think why didn't I do this before? There's a lot of people who kind of frown on going back and, and repurposing things that were originally designed as films or TV shows for comics. I personally think any way to get the idea out there mm-hmm. is great. Because, you know, not everything is going to be able to be done in these ultra-expensive mediums. You know, comics are still costly to produce, but they're more certainly more manageable than, say, you know, a season of a TV show or a, or a movie. Do you think that a good idea can cross boundaries into any medium or or, or do you think there are some ideas that are just meant for certain forms? I think that it's a problem when people say, for example, write write or create comics and only as a pitch, basically, for a movie or or a TV show and they don't really respect the medium itself. Um, And I think that's kind of different from having an idea in one medium and then deciding to bring it to fruition in another. Um, But I think that that there are definitely some sort of specific storylines that work particularly well in in one medium or or another. Like, I guess a good example is Watchmen, of course, which is something that is much discussed. But, like, mm. Watchmen, the story of Watchmen as it exists is made to be a comic, is, in my opinion, perfection as a comic. Absolutely. Um, and uses all these unique things that only comics can do to tell its story. So then when you get to the end and it all comes together, it's just an absolute body blow. It's amazing. When they try to make it as a film, even in a very literal kind of... Um, adaptation because they were trying to literally adapt it you know blow by blow except for certain things that they've changed for some strange reason um it it didn't work because they were trying to make the comic into a film and you don't make the comic into a film uh you can maybe make the story you know you can readapt the story but you know but not just to translate frame by frame into a film it's the mediums that are not exactly the same um, but then, when they made this TV adaptation recently, then um, they took conceptually took things from this Watchmen world, but they but they really did reimagine them in a way that utilised the form of a TV show in the way that Alan Moore had utilised and Dave Gibbons had utilised the form of the comic in the original book. It for me, it feels like a really good example of like what does and doesn't work when you're looking at the same thing through the prism of different mediums. Yeah, and I think in, in the case you mentioned of Watchmen, it, it's it's spot on because slavish adaptation does not help that. It, it needed to be reinterpreted. And, and I, I completely agree with, agree with you there. Is there ever a thought in the back of your mind, oh, I'd like to see uh, Nick Nevin uh, made into a a show or a film, I mean, given that you, you originally wanted to do it as a show, is that something you'd still like to see? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I'd really, I mean, that would be, I mean, that would be really cool, wouldn't it? 
<laughs> but um, uh, I think, um, I mean, to, to see it one day as the sort of um, kind of ed- YA TV show that I had originally thought about would be particularly cool. But if it did get adapted, then um, I would hope that whoever would adapt it would adapt it rather than just try and reproduce it on the screen. Sure, sure. I I think that's where a lot of comics initially in in the sort of early stage of the sort of current boom went wrong was, as we talked about, the kind of the solid adaptation rather than the reinterpretation of the material. Yeah, I think you have to reinterpret, otherwise what's the point of doing it? Mm. You're not bringing anything new to the table, then why do it at all? And I think one of the great pleasures of a lot of comic book movies is their ability to mix and match elements, or, or you know, of decades of, of comics. I definitely think that it's because they're utilizing the kind of the magic of cinema or the magic of TV to, you know, and bringing elements from uh, as as they are served, uh, as they serve the story that they're trying to tell. Um, going back to your collaborators, if I may, for a moment. Um, frequently did you kind of touch base with those guys because i assume a lot of you are working in different countries i I know is it matthew's based in the u.s um how how frequently were you kind of updating each other how how much did that fuel kind of close collaboration being that distance apart so we chatted quite frequently um, about different kind of aspects of the of the comic, and me and Matthew had one um, particular kind of uh, really long Skype chat that was really great and kind of got on the same page and everything. So yeah, it was um, we were pr- pretty well in touch and chatting to each other. Um, but then again, like you say, we were all very kind of remote and in different time zones and things like this. So then it would also just be um, you know regularly kind of. Uh, delivering pages, this sort of kind of regular schedule that you that you kind of upkeep. My script had been for the most part um, written before we um, before the book got commissioned. So there was also um, there was a protest of uh, once the um, first kind of passes of of lettering came in. There was a process of um, rejigging certain things to kind of fit in with the book as it was developing. And then during that time, you know, there was kind of a lot of chatting back and forth about what's the best thing to do. Also with um, with our editor, Alex, um, at Humanoids, who was um, uh, uh, fantastic at pulling everyone together and, uh, and making sure that everything kind of kept rolling as it should. How far into the process were you when Humanoids came on board? I had written um, the script. And at, at that time, it was um, separate scripts um, because it was we wrote. I wrote it as like four issues, and Dom had uh, done his three sample pages, and um, and Jock had not not drawn a cover, but he had said that he would, um, and that they came on at that stage. There had been a fair few changes to the to the scripts since Humanoids came on, so, but it was at a very early. Stage, I guess that they that they picked it up. I mean, to be honest, I don't really have that much frame of reference for uh, whether you would usually have full scripts or not when a graphic novel gets picked up. But in this case, we did have that. It's such a wonderful book, and 
I think everyone on it has done a great job. Um, it, it was a wonderful read. I'm really grateful for the chance to have got to read it early. So thank you very much oh, for thanks. that. And um, I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it was fantastic, and I'd definitely be recommending it. Um, and uh, thank you for doing this interview today. Uh, we really appreciate you oh, having, thanks for having me. Thank you. And so, yeah, thanks a lot, Helen. Great. Bye. Bye. Nick Nevin is available digitally from Humanoids and Comixology and physically from all good comic stockists. You can follow Helen on Twitter at SuperMegabot and would like to thank her for taking part in this interview. Follow us on Twitter at The Comic Crush, like the comiccrush.com page on Facebook and check out thecomiccrush.com every week for new comics content. And you can follow me at Comic on Twitter and Instagram. Our Script and Pencils podcast and our comic book film and TV podcast from Panels to Pictures are available to stream or download from thecomiccrush.com or available on Spotify. If you like our site and our pods, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where just $2 per month helps keep the site running and ad-free. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on The Crush.